0: It's kind of a great honor to be offering the uh, first talk of the last month of this series, uh, and I got to hand it to the guiding teachers. When we substitute, they don't tell us what to do; they just, you know, go for it, do what's in your heart. So, so that's what I'm that's what I'm doing. But it's it's interesting that Sila, which is ethics, is the last of the twelve subjects. For the 12 months and also the last of the three pillars, the way they framed it, wisdom, Donna and Sila. So we're talking about Sila, which is ethics and such, such an important thing. And this is at the heart, you know, of choices we make and it's the heart of how we conduct our lives, especially the time that we're not sitting on the cushion where we can actually do stuff. So it's, Incredibly important, and it might seem, you know, to some of us that silas, oh, that's kind of mundane. That's just the ethics thing. It's like, oh, I used to go to Sunday school, maybe hear about stuff like that. So that's not, you know, we might think that's not the the real stuff about the dharma and kind of kind of sidestep it. But actually, that's not the case. And because without our sila being dialed in, we won't succeed on the path to awakening. It's as simple as that. Got to have sila working or else it doesn't work. It's just the bedrock to practice. And as some of you know, you know in the history of well, Dharma in the West, teachers in the West, there have been a notable series of teachers who, who kind of blew it in that area. Often males, often with women, and it's really sad. And it took down what they did. It made people not trust them, and it was a failing. So it's something that we really need to work on, you know. As we as we're on the path, we really need to hold that and how precious it is.
1: You know, we can progress.
0: We can progress on the path if we work deeply with seal it with our actions. We can't progress on the path no matter how much we meditate if we don't. And that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight a bit. And I'm uh I kind of looked into this a lot, you know, and feeling the kind of the world's difficult right now and it's hard. It's hard. And I want to explore four areas that of ethics from kind of what I've been taught from my experience from reading the suttas a lot that may be helpful To you in your practice and kind of how I approach this stuff is I want it to make a difference for you I want my thought would be when you leave if you take away one thing that will actually change something about how you're living that's cool so I try to keep it simple and something that'll be workable so just a bit about the five precepts which are the key ethical guidelines for lay people in Buddhism, and the five are, I'm not going to go into this too much, just a little bit, but the five are training and not killing, training in not stealing, training in not lying, training in avoiding sexual misconduct, and training in not abusing, abusing intoxicants. And please note, these are all framed as trainings, right? These are practice to keep working at those things. Because it suggests several things. One is it's not black and white. A lot of these are, they get subtle. And it's not like sin or not. It's like what happens in our minds and what happens in reference to the people we're around. And then also, all five of these are very much about our practice, about training our minds. It's completely interconnected. So we work with it all the time. So the four I want to touch on, just to give you a little sneak preview, is how ethical actions align us with loving kindness and compassion and how how we hold ethics touches on the whole question of not-self and how, how we work with ethics touches on how our meditation goes and what goes on in our concentration or not. And then also, lastly, how it brings us closer to the inner light of awakening. I'll touch on those four things. We'll see where see where it goes. They're kind of like, if you frame it this way, these are all, you know, the Buddha taught about nibbana. He taught about waking up, being ultimately free. Reading the sutta is just relentless about that. And so this is about that. Is sort of my point. This isn't like, oh, sila, small thing. This is a sila, big thing. That's why it's the last one. I think it's really cool the way the guiding teachers made it sila the last one and not wisdom the last one. And it's really because of this. So, kindness. First one. Always on the path comes kindness. And many of you read His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He always says, my religion is kindness. That's what he says. My religion is kindness. This vast awakened being That's what he says. So it's clear, without kindness, awakening and wisdom, it doesn't mean that much. First we've got to be kind. Then let's
1: talk about the other stuff. And it's captured in the
0: Metta Sutta. Just a little section of it I'm going to read. I tend to read a little bit from the Suttas. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Isn't that beautiful? As an aspiration, as something to cultivate, that kind of attitude of loving kindness. So, In cultivating this, we wish for the well-being of others, of all others, of no matter who they are, just as if we were a mother and this other being we're encountering was our only child. You know, breathe that in for a minute. There may be some political persons that you disagree with a lot. Have that attitude towards them. There may be someone that's hard in your
1: life. Have that attitude towards them.
0: When we radiate kindness over the entire world, we're turning outward toward actions that bring peace and happiness to others.
1: But how do we actually do
0: that in the grit of daily life? And this is where the the ethics start to come in because the five precepts are exactly about that, exactly about manifesting kindness in places where It may be hard to do that. And the opposite of the five, breaking the five precepts, is about putting our own needs before others' needs every single time. It's about kind of not kindness. Ajahn Jayasaro says we offer the gift of harmlessness to the world. That's kind of another way of looking at loving kindness. In the uh, Numerical Discourses, the Buddha talks of how offering harmlessness to others brings freedom to oneself. He says, in giving freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings, one gains a share in limitless freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression. This is the first gift, the first great gift Original, long-standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated from the beginning that is not open to suspicion will never be open to suspicion and is unfaulted by knowledgeable contemplatives and Brahmins. So when we offer kindness, that's the world we create. So let's go through this in terms of the precepts just for a minute here. So killing. When we kill another... Perhaps an animal for food or that, you know, sport thing that people do when they go hunting. Whatever it is, we put our own needs before the needs of that being. Or when we kill an ant, we put our needs before the needs of that being. And it's not kind to kill another being. That being does not want to be killed. It wants to live. When we steal, and this gets real subtle, you know, But when we steal, we generally, like when we take something that isn't offered, we generally do it to get something we want. And we're inherently taking something that belonged to somebody else. We're kind of grasping at that wanted thing, and there's a sense of discomfort or difficulty for the person from whom we took it. We're putting ourselves first, and that's not kindness to do that, right? It's not kindness. See what manifests? See how those five are really about kindness? And lying, similar. You know, it's easy to tell the truth when there's nothing at stake for us. That's easy. The hard part is telling the truth when it has some downside for us. You know, what if we want something? Or we want to get out of something? Or we want someone else to take the blame for something? That's tempting, isn't it? It gets subtle, too to really think about the other when we're doing that. That's kindness. And if we find ourselves shading the truth to benefit ourselves at the harm of someone else, that's not kindness. So so do we bring the thought of kindness into those situations? It can help us see what's going to be helpful. Sexual misconduct, and that's kind of clear in one way, You know, by its nature, it's someone seeking pleasure for their own body and seeking that irrespective of the impact that might have on the person from whom the pleasure is sought. I mean, it's so subtle with all kinds of layers of self-deception and deceiving of one and the other. And it can even arise when there's no overt sexual activity. So to really bring kindness into that arena of the sexual energy between people and what they do, that's powerful. And, you know, we're not so good at it often, but that's incredibly important. So to bring kindness into that kind of cracks the code about what's going on sometimes. And lastly, intoxicants, you know, that might seem like, oh, that one, that's just what someone does on their own. You know, what's the problem? But actually, they don't do it on their own. You know, when people abuse intoxicants to escape the unpleasant or make something be okay, there's a human circumference always, right? They got family, they got friends. How does that affect them? Is the person less present for them? So, by the very nature, when people abuse intoxicants, it's almost always harming someone else. And if they can really get into their hearts how that is, like with these other things, maybe they won't do it. If we, Jayasara says, if we continue to harm other beings by body and speech, our expressions of metta remain hollow and cannot lead us to peace. So we really got to think about this as we're making choices, right? It's all about making choices. So think of the metaphors of nibbana, of awakening. The Buddha uses often cooling as one that's used a lot cooling and also not clinging. Two different kind of ways of understanding what, this freedom is that we're talking about on the path. And both of them have a lot to do with how we relate to people. And if we abuse any of these five precepts, we're putting our own needs ahead of others, we're moving away from kindness, and we're also moving away from nibbana, from the cooling. And if we're grasping, it's not cooling. If we're grasping, it's not not clinging. So any of these subtle aspects of the choices we make in terms of the precepts, if we do the selfish thing, it pulls us away from the very freedom that we aspire to. And the second I wanted to explore a little bit with you is this very related. All these are related to each other, all these four things. is a whole arena of not-self, anatta. And this is, you know, I get it, kind of puzzling for some people, this whole, what is this not-self thing all about? Sometimes it seems like it's this kind of arcane esoteria that has little to do with our actual lives. But right here in this exploration of sila, of ethics, anatta kind of becomes alive.
1: Because the Buddha,
0: it gets down to this question of what we can control or what we can't, who we are. In the second discourse, the Buddha said, Consciousness is not self, for if consciousness were self, it wouldn't lead to affliction. And you could compel consciousness, may my consciousness be like this, may it not be like that. But because consciousness is not self, it leads to affliction. And you can't compel consciousness. May my consciousness be like this. May it not be like that. You should truly see that any kind of consciousness at all, past, future, or present, internal or external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, far or near, all consciousness with right understanding, this is not mine, I am not this, this is not myself. And some of you know that's part of what's called the, the, uh, five aggregates, the Different aspects that make up our sense of self. In my own life, I found that these choices, ethical choices, I learn a lot about self and not self. And it's usually when it's hard, you know, when we're torn, that there's an opportunity there to see, but it's also a a danger. It's right on that edge where we can see that it's our sense of self that causes the problem. It causes the problem. It can pull us into unethical activities. So, for instance, just the other day, my wife was starting to say something close to her heart, and I was trying to figure out some kind of hardware issue about our house in, the, in my head. And I'll confess that I have kind of a weakness for schematics and how things work. So I was kind of putting something together in my head and I was a little bit attached to that. So I didn't completely get what she was saying. And she's incredibly tuned in. My wife is. And she realized I wasn't there hearing her. So she called me on it. So, you know, dude, you're not hearing me. And at first I kind of waffled and said, oh, yeah, I did hear you. But then I actually realized which she was right. Those are the most sacred words in marriage. And, uh, and acknowledge that I hadn't been fully present. So, you know, was that a big violation of Sila? Maybe not. But it was something. In, in, a, in way, There was a way in which I did put myself first. This little mental thing I was doing, this little game I was playing, put myself first and didn't quite hear her. When she started to say, I didn't quite hear her. I didn't turn fully to hear her you could say I stole from her or lied from her I mean it was small, it was subtle but a little bit of that for sure and I could see the reason for that was the sticky sense of self You know, this Steve person that I tend to cater to until I realize it's not really there ultimately and that's kind of where this gets at because we do a lot of stuff because of our sticky sense of self don't we you know, all kinds of choices we make and we kind of, we kind of cuddle up to it and think it's important. But then if we're called to actually step out for someone else, you realize, you know what? What was that? There's nothing really there. It's just this little kind of grasping. So I found this super helpful in the whole area of kindness and Sila to look at. In those moments is just when you can see the way we're sticking onto self. You know, you can look at that as a sacred possibility just when it's hard. Like, oh, you again. It's like Mara. Oh, Mara, I see you. You know, I see you, sticky sense of self, getting in the way of being kind. Getting in the way of showing up for the person that you're closest to. So selfishness can be kind of a, I made up a new word, selfingness. Is that a word? Because selfing is this weird kind of English english created word that's come up in the Dharma. I don't think selfing is a normal word in the Webster's Dictionary, but we use it in the Dharma. And you know, we create self, or selfing. But selfingness is a sort of quality of being stuck there. So, you know, when we're really cultivating ethical conduct, turning towards loving kindness, we can see that it starts to uncouple our attachment to self. We start to see through it. It gets less and less sticky. And that actually, that's where a not that really matters, to have it uncouple in our hearts and minds in terms of how we are with others. That's where it matters. It doesn't have to be this theoretical thing like, but what are we doing? What are we doing with the person we love? That's where it matters. And that's where it can be a real gift of freedom. Now, a third area where sila can be real important relates to our meditation practice. You know, our sitting down meditation practice and how that is for us. And for many of us, some much of the time, perhaps, (laughs) our meditation practice might seem a bit more cluttered than we would prefer. Does anybody have that experience? Like, you know, stuff coming up. We hope to settle down into this quiet attention, this pool of peace to be mindful moment by moment and find ourselves in this sort of ping pong game of the mind. That's okay. But it's relevant to cast Attention on what's happening and why. And how to work with those arisings so that they bring us to insight. But where do they come from? You know, the stuff that pops up. Some of it, you know, it's, it's traumas. It's the difficulty of the world. It's things that we have no control over. Certainly. No doubt about it. Minds are full of yearnings and losses and all and projections. But there's also a chunk of it that comes out of our choices or choices we've made or choices we've made in the past. You know, do you ever have regret come up during a sit? Something like, out of the blue, you're thinking about, oh man, when I was 10 and I did this thing with my brother, what a butthead I was, you know, it hits you in the heart. So we learn in practice to watch what we're doing because the place we can make changes is starting now in terms of how we are and how it's gonna be in our practice. And the funny thing is, you know, as some of you may have seen, as the subtler our practice is, the more of a diamond edge these ethical choices become. There used to be a lot more wiggle room in terms of what was okay, and it becomes less and less okay. It's like, no, that's not okay. You know, that's not okay to do that anymore or to be that anymore or to think that anymore about someone else. But it's related to our practice because the more we can clarify those things, dance down that diamond edge, make the right choices, then our practice gets stronger because we're not putting new garbage in the hopper, right? You know, if we keep messing up, that's what's going to come up when we're practicing, It's it's the nature of mindfulness to be aware of that which is up. And if we're making choices that put ourselves before others, we'll see that. And if we want to really be able to settle and have insight, then we better clear the decks and act with kindness and really work with ethical choices. So, you know, you could say unethical choices cloud the mind. Ethical choices don't. Pretty simple like that, right? So uh, as you work with all this, you know, it becomes clear that uh, the benefit from ethical choices, there's a real upside. It really carries us along. It makes a big difference in our practice lives and the rest of our lives. It's not just, you know, that, that nice thing we do and then we practice. This is it. This is what changes things for us. And the last one I wanted to touch on is it's colorations of the mind. I don't quite know how to express this, but how we bring light or darkness into our minds. And this is kind of a, a, subtle, a subtle matter. Um, I, I, I'm gonna date myself, but does anybody, anybody remember Jiminy Cricket? Does that ring a bell for anybody? All right, Jiminy Cricket was a, older people are nodding. This is a uh, Walt Disney thing, and it was this little cricket with sort of this voice of conscience. But consciousness is really interesting. You know, when we are faced with ethical choices, there's some part of our heart and mind that often knows what to do. Or we see what to do. Or we can taste, if we go one direction or another, what our mind state will be like. And if we go in the way we probably know would be better not to, it gets darker. You know what I'm saying? You kind of feel that. Oh, if I do this, but you can kind of feel this like darkness settle over. It's real interesting. But on the other hand, the ethical choice, or the kindness choice, or the loving choice, like helping some, putting someone else first, it brings this kind of lightness, this kind of uplift. You see people that do that a lot, like the Dalai Lama. That's all he does. He puts other people first. That's all he does. And you can see this incredible radiance from him because that's all he does. So this is to me. I'm, like, I'm ending with this one because it's it's a sort of very subjective and tactile, but it's a really something you can bring into your heart in terms of how you maneuver all this, how you kind of tune into what you do with your life. And you know, I I sort of find myself avoiding places. Like, I don't go to bars because it just doesn't feel like it's got a bright energy to me. Any, I never did anyway, but especially it doesn't. It just doesn't feel like bright energy. I don't want to do it. Or any of that kind of stuff. See, we, we we find ourselves choosing what we do just by tuning into our hearts and what is light versus not. And and that has everything to do with the ethical choices that we make kind of tied into that. And this questions of sort of the this is why I was, I was say a little bit about this, because it, there's certain ways of understanding the Dharma having to do with the nature of mind that come up in Mahayana more than Theravada. And I know this is essentially primarily kind of Theravada, sort of. Although we did talk about Zen for a year, or so maybe not completely. Um, but still, in the suttas, there's reference to this very sense of light that comes up in the mind, here and there, but it's really powerful. In one of the, Ways the Buddha describes his awakening. He says, ignorance was destroyed, knowledge arose, darkness was destroyed, light arose, as happens in one who is heedful, ardent, and resolute. It's always kind of gets me light, light arose. And then in, in the numerical discourses, the Buddha said, the mind is clear, luminous, obscured by visiting defilements. It's a, little quote I use a lot, think about a lot. You know, but what are those visiting defilements? But choices we make, ethical choices we make. I mean, every, every choice we make has an ethical component in it. You know, see what we do, see what we do. So when we choose the ones that make things darker, we bring new defilements in. When we choose the ones that make things lighter, there's more light. And, in, and, and, and the mind is not obscured. The luminous nature is not obscured. And the more deeply we practice, the more obvious this becomes. We just don't want to do it. Why obscure the luminous nature of mind? What a self-defeat that would be. So, to round this up just about, you know, the ethical choices we make are utterly connected to our awakening. So it's not second, it's first tier. It's right at the front, which is why it's at the end of this, which is so cool. And sometimes you have to make hard choices. But the, when we step up, brings happiness to others and brings happiness to ourselves. So it's kind of a slam dunk. When we get clear about that, the choice becomes obvious. I want to end with this lovely little exchange between the Buddha and Ananda. Ananda was his attendant. And they had this very, and a cousin, and Ananda was very gentle, and they had this very interesting kind of relationship. Ananda says, what, O Venerable One, is a reward and blessing of a wholesome morality? The Buddha said, freedom from remorse, Ananda. And of freedom from remorse, joy, Ananda. And of joy, rapture, Ananda. And what's the reward of rapture? Tranquility, Ananda. And of tranquility, happiness, Ananda. And of happiness, concentration, Ananda. And of concentration, vision and knowledge according to reality. And of vision and knowledge according to reality, turning away and detachment, Ananda. And of turning away and detachment, division and knowledge with regard to deliverance, Ananda. So he started from the simplest thing, from morality, and just kept asking. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's, you know, ethical choices, seal a direct path to happiness and deliberation. So let's sit for a second. So, if we want to have any discussion about any of that, um, let's see, in terms of my understanding, we can. If you all out online, pop your digital hand up so I can see you. And anyone here, raise your hand. There's the warm seat so the people out there can see you. And uh, if anything to be shared, questions, thoughts, complaints. <laughs> Hi, I'm Adam. Um,
2: <clears throat> I wanted to dive in a little bit more on that relationship between Sila and the formal sitting practice. And um a couple of terms that come to mind are to me it seems like it's a really iterative kind of process where you start it with one thing it affects the other which in turn affects the other and the other term that comes to mind is kind of fake it till you make it so cuz sometimes Sila feels like like the difference between good good conduct and bad conduct is sometimes just a lapse of mindfulness. You know, I'm over-identified, I do something and realize it, but it's like, well, I wasn't mindful in that moment. But on the other hand, it's like undertaking the trainings, which you kind of touched on, it's like my intent is to do, do better. And in that process, it feels like you get a little quieter, a little cooler, and then when you're in your sitting practice, maybe you... You penetrate a little deeper, which makes it easier. It seems like to me to abide by those that intention to do better with with sila, which again kind of reinforces the sitting practice. So, what what do you think about that and that kind of like that interplay back and forth and back and forth and is that
0: a big part of the the deepening of practice?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind. Of, yeah, I mean, you
0: said it beautifully, and that's you sort of. Uh, you know, reset what I said in a good way, because exactly, as, as we, uh, you know, practice more, it becomes clear, you get more discerning about those subtle little things that you can see that you would have just not even noticed X number of years ago. And as you become more, and as your practice becomes deeper, then it becomes clearer what to do or not to do, and they help each other along. Yeah, but they very much help each other along, and that's kind of why I wanted to frame it that way, because we can sort of think they're separate, but they're not.
2: Yeah. Thank you. And the other thing that I just wanted to say real quick is you kind of say, you know, this is what's right up front. and But I'm thinking back to the ox herding pictures, and it's kind of also what's at the very end, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, the practice for many of us is, or maybe everybody is, about... You know, bringing it back, you know, <laughs> ultimately coming back and being in the world and bringing light into the world. And so like this sila is the only place you can start. And it's also the only place you can end with it. in some
0: ways. Right. Like and that. exactly. And that's why I mean, that's why the Dalai Lama is so relevant, because he's, you know, arguably one of the most awakened people in the world. And that's where he is. You know, that's what you see. It's incredible tantric, whatever he does when he gets up at three in the morning and practices for hours, and you know, being the 14th Dalai Lama. But what he says is my religion is kindness, and then he manifests that, and it's just flawlessly amazing to be around to see how he does that. You know, it's humbling because it just makes it. Speaking for myself, so aware of a million little sticky self concerns I have. They just, they just, he just go. <laughs> he's just out there, you know, and absorbing and listening. On deep levels, that's when he when he speaks. I've been in places where, you know, there's like a thousand people and he speaks. And I hear all kinds of people say, oh, my God, he spoke right to me. What just happened? You know, but because he was so out of his own self-concerns that he was on some amazing way hearing people. So that kindness is right there with that deep awakening. And maybe that's exactly how it manifests in terms of what matters in the world. Thank you. Okay. Go for
3: it. Hi, Jamal here.
1: Um,
0: what,
3: what's your name? What's your name, Jamal. Jamal. Okay. Um, as I was listening to Adam and you speak about the CELA, um, and as I've been listening to today, I think, seela has been mostly focused on like how do I practice sila, um, but um I guess I'm curious to hear how does sila stay the same or change if you start thinking about like how we practice sila like within a communal sense. Hmm.
0: Do you say more what you're going looking for there, or what I mean, are
3: you I feeling? Think with... Particularly because the word practice yeah. I think is a feels like the big hinge word. Um, as we think about practicing the tenets of Sila and for say like, for example, um, I think maybe I give myself grace or kindness or practice that, um, when I notice that, okay, I'm not doing as good as I could be or as good as I think I could be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, but now, like, let's say if I'm out in the world and I experience let's say someone practicing sila but it's not going that well for them that day or whatever um i don't think uh my first instinct is to think about oh well i'm happy they're practicing you know i may just be like i think they just lied to me you know like (laughs) that wasn't very kind um so yeah that relation of like on the individual maybe perspective like i can reflect back and be like oh i think i was like trying there, but I didn't really hit the mark versus now I don't have the insight into someone's own mind, if they were actually practicing Sila, or like on this journey of practicing Sila, or were they just lying to me, or were they being unkind, or stealing, or et cetera, et cetera.
0: So I'm not, I, you know, if, I mean, there's discernment in all this, you know, we can really have loving kindness towards people, even when they're messing up, and we can point out to them that they're messing up, And still have loving kindness toward them and not concretize them into bad. I'm not quite sure how that fits with, forgive me, with what you're saying, but it does seem like, um, yeah, something like that. I
1: feel like I'm not,
0: forgive me, I'm not quite getting it. No,
3: no, I don't think there's much more for me to say on it. Yeah, okay. Thanks. Okay. Iris. Hi,
4: thank you um oh, there you go.
0: Can you hear me? Can't quite hear. Is there some volume that goes up that yeah. okay, so start talking and i will dial you in
4: okay, go
0: okay, Bingo. okay great.
4: Here. um, I guess I wanted to reflect on Adam's comment a little bit uh about how um practice informs daily living. And vice versa with regards to Sila and, you know, and, and teachers have, have said, and this is, um, certainly true for me. Like if I've, if I've harmed or lied or taken stuff that wasn't freely offered and then I sit down on the cushion, um, I I'm, I'm not very peaceful you know in my heart and mind you know which is which is not to say that even if I haven't done those things and generally I don't do too much of those things um, I'm terribly peaceful meaning that my my mind is still quite distracted but it's very clear to me that when I have um done something that um what's the word um that 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 doesn't conform with the precepts that that um disrupts my ability to to sit as peacefully as as otherwise I might be able to, so yeah. it's very clear that um yeah that that not living the precepts as much as possible, you know and and like most of us, I'm so far from perfect um you know and and the you know the thing about like intoxicants i mean you know we're talking about you know eating four pieces of cake or watching too much you know netflix or consuming media so you know it's not just drugs and alcohol
0: right yeah i i think it's really you know clear and beautiful what you're saying and i mean one thing you can do is just rejoice in your evolving discernment you know because the mere fact that it jumps at you at so quick, that's, that's like reflects the work you've done for so many years. And, and so even though it seems pesky and, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I think it's a good thing to rejoice in and appreciate. Yeah.
4: yeah. And, you know, and the other thing about, um, you know, noticing when you're um, act when, when I'm acting wholesome, whether it's my thoughts, my speech, my actions, you know, my, my heart will open. And, you know, you were talking about lightness and darkness for me, it, you know, in terms of being in touch with, with my body, um, when I'm, when I do something mean or petty, you know, I, I feel, you know, I feel my insides contract right away. I feel my heart contract. So that's a very clear cue for me about, you know, which, which path am I going down?
0: And yeah. do you do you feel like I know you're someone very concerned about the world? do you feel like as you kind of cultivate loving kindness does that move you forward into this discernment you know in terms of your 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 evolution or your training I feel like it's getting clearer over time
1: that
4: my discernment is getting clearing in light of loving kindness i i um I, I don't do a lot of formal loving kindness practice. Um I'm one of those people who say, Oh, that's too hard. Um, <laughs>
1: um but I I am aware that um I try
4: not to impugn others, you know, when when People are acting in ways, and right now I'm talking about big, powerful people in the world, though right. so you know it's, um in ways that seem harmful and uh so destructive. I don't spend a lot of time hating them um but but rather just trying to to discern you know how do i how do I respond what's my work yep. what, what do I what do I need to do? And, um, you know, fr- from, you know, being a retired psychiatric nurse, you know, the old, I mean, people, people are doing the best they can. And, uh, it, it's often maybe not very good, but, um, you know, I think it's because of ignorance and our, and our greed and delusion and so forth. So I'm rambling now.
0: No, it's cool. And I think this parting thing is, you know, how do I say our, Our different journeys don't necessarily look the same and the way that you're exercising loving kindness by avoiding judging others if you find their actions appalling is amazing. That's like a, that's like, that's like your lift right now. That's like, that's very impressive. You know, so you, you do practice loving kindness even if you don't consciously do that kind of phrases or whatever. So thank you.
1: Yeah.
5: I, yeah, my name is Carlos. Um Yeah, so I guess in terms of, like, ethics, when we're talking about, um I guess, like, our journey into Buddhism or meditation and, like, people who are ahead of us or that might be our teachers or people that, like, we look at. Because, um, I mean, if I'm thinking about something like Say cooking, like, I, I understand that like I could learn a lot about cooking from somebody that maybe I don't love their food, but I can see that like technically there's a lot of stuff that I can get from. But I feel like when it comes to meditation practice,
1: if, I don't know,
5: I feel like it gets trickier when I feel like there's definitely a lot of wisdom in this person. But then the way they act, I don't feel like it's really following what we're all saying that we should be doing. Like Mm -hmm. in terms of like, maybe somebody who like, might be very cruel towards somebody else in specific situations or might be very arrogant or things like that. So yeah, I don't know. Like I, I guess when, when I encounter something like that, I don't really know what to think. In terms of, like, are they just doing it wrong? And this is why, like, that part didn't click? Or, like, should I still try to separate? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, you might just walk away, for one thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I know, it's, it's true. true. I mean, it gets, it's, I mean, that's why this is so important, because I think you're sort of referring to people, you know, there are some massive ethical
5: breaches among. Yeah, and I mean, even, even if it's not as far, yeah like something that works more like is is this like on the line it's not like you know we just pay attention to your heart but I think that's why
0: the I think that's why this is so important and why kindness is so important and ethics are so important and personally I just I mean I've been doing this for a long long time and I just I just don't even bother you know if someone's ethics are off I'm out of there Uh, because I just I'm not gonna learn anything from them and 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 you need to be able to trust someone is a teacher and you know it's sad there have been and it sort of shows us how much we need to work on that ourselves you know if someone could practice for decades and then blow it <laughs> you know it hurts hurt people hurt people so obviously they they miss something and and compassion to them and of course they can they got to do their journey They get that straight got that but in terms of our own relationship with teachers I, I just walk away yeah, and, and don't, and just, you know, kind of learn from, learn from it. Cause that is, you know, it's one of the tricky bits is as, as, as we, you know, develop on the path, our capacity to, to hurt people, in a sense, also grows cause people trust, mm. trust us, you know, and if we mess up it, that can really be hard on people. So it's, it's a, a significant, uh, deepening. To be on the path and to really, really realize how much responsibility we have. And that's why this stuff is so important, because that's that is the place where people mess up is right in the Serena seal. It's five precepts. So simple. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I really am. Thank you. Thanks. Suze, I think you're in the right sequencing. Yeah, go for it.
1: Hi.
6: Thank you so much, Steve, uh, for your talk. One of the things that I just wanted to mention is that um, the collective practicing of sila that we do as practitioners all over the world, it feels to me that the world really needs us, even in our imperfection. And it um, inspires me um, because every time a Dharma friend shares how they dealt with the the othering that they do or you know making somebody else feel bad or just you know or um when we've caught ourselves and apologized and um the world is um so caught up in um the lack of kindness and the lack of of recognition of the, the humanity of everyone that, um, I find practicing Sila to be really inspiring because of that. And um just thought maybe you'd have some words to respond on that
0: one. I, I think what you say is very true and I mean it's I think there's no funny because i 'cause I'm 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 pretty involved in the monastic world. I'm on the, uh Border Clear Mountain Monastery and, and, and also Tibetan Nuns Project, both of which support monastics in different ways. And what's interesting, one thing that strikes me, we make these phone calls where we thank people for being donors. So like during the whole last, last administration, the whole era of pandemic, all this stuff, people were so thankful. There's this space where these monastics are living with this incredibly pure, uh, ethics. You know, the Vinaya, the rules of monastics are pretty rigorous, but when you get right down to it, Pretty much, it's pretty hard to, I mean, if you mess up, you're not a monastic anymore. It's pretty clear. And and people feel this relief that some people are living that way. And I think we can breathe that in. And, and, you know, if you have a chance to be around monastics and see how they are, they have this bright energy to them. Even though it seems like there's a whole bunch of stuff we can do they can't do. Handle money, store a piece of pie for tomorrow morning. You know, all that stuff they can't do. And there's this brightness of energy. So I think, I actually think it's to my surprise almost that the role of monastics here, 2600 years after the Buddha lived, here in 2023, is really important, just because the the seal is so pure, and it really helps us orient and find out how we're going to live when we get a reference point like that. So uh, yeah,
1: does that kind of click with what you're saying a little bit?
6: it does and and there's not a but it's a and um, those of us who live our lay householders lives where we're so confronted with all the opportunities to not practice kindness to not um uh let go of the the strengths of holding on to views and stuff and when we we walk through our lives practicing. I, I'm inspired by that as well as by the monastics.
0: Yeah.
1: So
6: it's a both and for me.
0: Right. Yeah. And I, I find it really helps me with, you know, choices because, you know, we all know we're like utterly inundated by Amazon trucks saying, this is it or whatever they say. They try to get you to buy stuff and to have a counterweight of people who live with that kind of grace and loving, lovingness is really helpful to not get just sucked in even in subtle ways. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, you bet. It Kathy. Let's see if I can there, make are. all this
7: work. Okay, Steve, I just um really but now I wanna see you and not me. Okay. Everybody. Okay. I think I got it. Um I got so much out of your talk in a in an in a interesting way. Because you were talking about Sila and our own practice, our own experience of our practice. And I had a kind of an interesting thing happen to me yesterday, which was that I went to a social gathering and I felt myself uh, kind of contracting a little bit. And I would have had an opportunity to be uh, friendly or neutral or who knows. Many things that could have happened, but none of those things happened. And instead, I was having some kind of dark stuff, and or just not, you know, not feeling good at all. And I real, I did not wasn't until we were sitting tonight, and I realized, oh boy, I wasn't having a good time because I was feeling very insecure around this person. And I thought, wow, that is getting in the way of my, you know, kind of feeling. Calm or clear or, or just more at peace. And um, I wasn't going to, I don't know what, I suppose I would have gotten to it eventually. I don't know, I hope I would. But anyway, it was just so helpful that you put it that way. And I just heard it at the right
0: moment. So thank you. Is it putting, putting what, well, is it having to do with the contraction part? I'm trying to make sure I'm understanding what was helpful
7: yeah thank you yeah um you were saying that our our own uh our own meditation practice would be disturbed or however you put it was it you put it when we're not uh when we're disturbed or when we're dark or cloudy or feeling you know conflicted yeah. and all these things so but i um uh, I sat with this for a whole day today and uh it didn't quite come clear to me. Until I was sitting, I, I realized at the end of the 40 minutes tonight, oh boy, I've been gone a lot of the time. And it was because I was, I kept revisiting this uncomfortableness because this is, again, going back to your idea about the sense of self. I guess myself was feeling insecure and threatened uh, when I, you know, I I would have had some choices there. I could have been. Just even, even minded or even friendly. But, uh, so I'm just, uh, grateful to have. Did I make that clear?
0: Yes. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. I think so. And I, I think it's great, you know, cause, cause, um, I think part of what our journey is, is, is as we get clearer, as, as we, you know, over time, we get cultivate our mindfulness and become a more aware of what our rising patterns are. Then we don't get caught by them so much in the middle. We don't have to wait till the next day to see through them, we can see through them when they're happening. Which just sounds like kind of what you were wishing you could do more. and And you can. It's just this is your journey. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Has anyone, I see another, any physical persons here before? Got another online person. Okay. Uh, Jackie.
8: Yeah. <clears throat> I wanted to ask a question about regret. Um, I don't have a lot of huge regrets that come up, but there's a couple that do. And unfortunately, both of the regrets I have involve people that are no longer alive. And I'm wondering what to do about those very deep, sad feelings I have about Mm -hmm. this regret.
0: Well, you never know, for one thing. I mean, you know, there is Mm -hmm. this rebirth thing. Who knows? But sometimes there's ways to work with that possibility. And so you might give them, send loving kindness to those people. Who knows? can't hurt you know and those beings those beings wherever they are and, and just have a conversation and apologize and and send love to them and, and envision you know envision you not doing whatever you did that you regret mm-hmm. and just kind of work it out with them even though they may not be here and then see I think also it's like um, seeing how that gives you A new understanding of where to be kinder to others. That may have been some sticky bit about yourself, Mm -hmm. whatever choice you made at that time, and to offer that, you know, offer that new, more open-hearted way to others that you would now encounter. Those people would rejoice at that, Mm -hmm. that you were bringing more love into the world in that way. So it's a healing and, uh, yeah, kind of like that. But don't, don't, you know, I guess I would say if, if one other thing is sometimes regret you might, um, look at, in terms of your mindfulness practice, look at where you're feeling it. Because I'll bet there's a burning in the gut. Mm -hmm. I'll bet it's very physical. Mm -hmm. You know, and really just be, be aware of that. Let it, let, let the pieces come apart. Otherwise it can be this sort of hot, hot aching kind of sticky thing
1: mm-hmm.
0: that you don't need that's not really real for one thing and you don't need that to be burning in your heart so to kind of let the pieces kind of float open and express love into it and yeah and it is it is you know it's the cauldron of growth that we got. unpeeling the onion means every single thing we gotta to see to get through it. And that's okay. That's a beautiful thing. So I would also rejoice if that keeps coming back. It's like, oh, okay. I'm, I'm waking up a little bit here. That's cool. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Welcome. Yeah. Hi. I'm Cheryl
9: and, uh, I, I appreciated what you, your, um, your example about when when your wife was talking and that's um, it it brought to mind that my my much of my practice is sila and I didn't really understand that in the beginning um, but I have very habitual energy of uh aversion you know I grew up with it and, and it's you know came into the practice late I mean it's kind of and it, that that's not even anything and I and I wonder if if your question about it, I'm not always making the mark For me, I I rarely make the mark, (laughs) and I've had to practice. My other practice is is compassion, self-compassion, and that has been—it's taken me years. And now, as I as I notice that I've that I'm that I'm responding to something in a more skillful way, and I'm not, you know, I'm not getting mad at Kathy when she's in the kitchen because she's in my way. You know that kind of stupid stuff that we do habitually, and. I've had to, I've had to really, um, you know, love myself too, and, um, and you know, everything that everybody said, I'm like, you know, I can relate to all of it, like, you know, Jackie talking about, you know, regret, and, you know, when my mother died, I, you know, I was practically suicidal because I was such an asshole, and, you know, and and what I've, and what I had to do there was forgive myself. Forgive myself and forgive mm-hmm. myself and forgive myself over and over and over again, and allow and allow them to forgive me as well. Um, so yes. anyway, I just wanted to throw that in. There A part of what, what I'm hearing day.
0: in that is that these seemingly simple steps that you're taking in your growth are actually transcendent. You know, they
9: feel that way now. They, or they, didn't, they don't always feel that. Yeah, way. right. They, they don't <laughs>
0: feel that way in the moment, but that's where they go. That's the result. So, you know, to really take that in, it's like the mundane stuff is the transcendent. Yeah. Right on. Thanks. <laughs>
10: <laughs> I just thought it was interesting that um, when I started speaking tonight, I talked about kind of feeling off the path after I was really, like, bowed over with grief and just, like, having this reaction of, like, I'm going to break all the precepts and screw all this spiritual stuff So I was just so in shock from, like, these multiple losses. There's always something in the back of my head, which is, like, you know what's going to help you be free. You know what's going to help you recover. And it was the precepts, right? It's, like, so reassuring, I think, to have these steps and to have people that have practiced them or done their best to wholesomely practice them, all the way back to the Buddha and this the lineage. And so even while I was, you know, like, drinking and, I don't know, stealing or whatever, you know, whatever the things were that were like so reactionary to have that is also such a gift. And to be like, okay I know I I need to do to kind of get back to a place of more wholesomeness. And then I think also there's like risk of shame around this, too, in terms of like, you know, falling short of the precepts. And I think that like that's like probably not the point of the teaching. Carrie, who's a teacher that I love a lot. Most of you know, always talks about how the teachings are meant to set us more free. And I think, as someone also who grew up in like a very like evangelical setting, it was all about like being good. And I think that like that can sometimes miss the point too with the precepts. It is about like orienting towards kindness so that we can be kind to ourselves and be kind to others to realize that there is no self, to realize that there's all, you know. And so, I don't know, I just maybe speaking to that around like what happens when we're short of the precepts and how do we avoid falling to these. Sh- you know, falling to shame, which is very reinforced by our society. Because I feel like that also pulls us away. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, it sounds like I mean, you had (laughs) in the back of your heart, you knew it. You knew what when you said this will help me be free. Uh So it wasn't like, oh, I'm doing bad stuff or "Oh, I'm I'm wrong. Or it was like this isn't going to get me free. And so that that's the deal. You know what you know whatever however long you did or didn't do whatever that stuff doesn't matter, but you sort of have that in your heart and you saw that and continue to. and that's that's really what what it's about, isn't it yeah, and you probably i bet you sort of um gain some perspective that it will be with you forever from that period that'll be a gift to others who who are struggling, right, so there's always that compassion aspect, so yeah. Um, you know, I'm sorry for your loss, and I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Let's see, looking at the time. Ooh, we're almost there. Is that a – oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, Kat.
1: Hi.
8: Um, I'm sorry if this is kind of a basic question, but when when you talked about kind of having a choice of – something in your life and and one feels more like light and and good and you see like yeah and the other doesn't feel like that I like totally know what you're talking about and yet there's like multiple instances that come right to mind when like I've been super conscious of both of those and I have it's not even like I have a bad choice or a Okay, choice. It's like I have a choice that I know will make me feel good and a choice that I know will make me probably feel bad. And yet I like still choose the bad. And I'm just like, it doesn't make sense. Right.
0: <laughs> but
8: there's got to be like a reason. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. As, is that. So How's it, that changing? How's that changing over time? I mean, here we are in. <laughs>
8: I mean, I would say I'm like maybe I was even less aware of it in the past. Less aware. Yeah, but I would say I'm I'm kind of like at the beginning of of my journey. I I suppose my question is like why why do we do that and oh. and maybe if you have any like suggestions on on moving towards the light.
0: Yeah, well keep you know keep I mean a big part of the practice is is cultivating our attitudes and training you know there's a part of it that's sad and and, you know it might be for you there's because you i know you it feels like you see some of these options and and the you know do some absorbing into the alternatives like think about it you know absorb into it see what it means to you so that when you those things come up you can kind of catch it sooner, see it more clearly, do what brings you to the light more easily. I mean, all of us are tugged by all kinds of stuff. I get it, you know. But the, the 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 degree to which you can internalize what's going to bring you freedom and happiness, then the decisions will be clearer. And there may be some, you know, some patterns down in there that, you need to work on, however you work on them, to, to 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 take those steps. But I think also in what you're saying to me, there's a sense of direction, like you're seeing the way forward, yeah. Even though you don't always do it, but you see the way forward. So just keep, you know, rechoosing the possibility of light and re-choosing the possibility of freedom every time you face that choice and talk, you know, talk about it as far as Sangha. That's the preciousness of Sangha, you know. Talk about it with someone. Get, you know, buddy up with someone. Like, I would really, like, harness harness the human part. What do you think in
1: there?
0: What do you think in there? Any more? Come back.
8: I liked, um, I'm thinking about, like, maybe in those instances where I recognize a choice. Like, i I don't know if this is what you meant, but I was kind of hearing, like, really letting myself kind of, like, imagine the how I will feel if I, like, go towards the light. And, like, almost enjoy that, like, before I even make the choice so that I'm like, yes,
0: Yep. this way. I think so, yeah. And you might really, like, you know, I know it sounds mundane, but study the five precepts a bit. And because it can really, like, kind of land in our heart, and we can say, "Oh yeah, now I see why that it would be helpful. Why that would lead you to freedom? Because it's all about cat freedom, not about cat good or bad. You know, cat is wonderful, but it's about cat freedom. Yeah." Cool. Yes, Steve. Okay, folks. <laughs> I guess this is time. So, um, I'd like to dedicate the merit as something. That's part of kind of how I hold this tradition. I don't think they do it here necessarily, but that's okay. On the east side we do. And that means, we can just settle for a minute, you know, just when we think about the conditions of 2023, that there was this gathering of people with their hearts open, really focused on truth, really focused on love. That's so amazing. So there's a beautiful merit here. And think of, to someone in your life that's, you know, sick or died, or someone that is in your heart, whether it's people in Gaza or people in Ukraine or on a global level, or someone immediately in a dog you love, whatever it is, let's dedicate the merit to those beings that they can find turning to the light, that they can find freedom in the middle of pain.
1: Thank you so much.